0: Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast. I am your host Stuart Butler and I am going to warn you all now that this crew is in a crazy mood. There's a little bit of sillies around the table, starting with Pete DiMaio.
1: Yep, put your seatbelts on everybody. It's going to be a big episode.
0: Hopefully they are already with their seatbelts on because a lot of people listen to us while they're driving, so... If not, then buckle Or in up. the
2: nut house where they're just straight, constantly yeah. <laughs> straight <laughs> jacketed. And in.
0: speaking of nut house is Misha Bakikio.
2: I am here. Hello, everybody.
0: And the slightly more subdued Phil Fariska. Hey, everybody. Still Click it or ticket. Yeah, I do have the sniffles today. I apologize. And today we're going to be talking about mobile. Not mobile Alabama, but mobile as in the trend towards mobile devices. I think it's
2: pronounced mobile.
0: Mobile <laughs> Alabama? Yeah. Okay, I'm not up to... Your emphasis
2: was off this week.
0: We did that joke last week. I know. Uh, Yeah, I don't know a whole lot. I know that uh, they pronounce Birmingham wrong in Alabama. Is it Birmingham?
2: It's Birmingham. No, it's
0: Birmingham. Birmingham? Birmingham? Yeah. You're not not here. here.
3: Birmingham. I
2: I always pronounce, I think, Louisville. Is that... It's not Louisville. It's Louisville. If you're
1: from there, it's Louisville. It's Louisville. Anywhere else, it's Louisville.
2: Well, it's like, if you're from Mississippi, it's actually Mississippi.
0: You can say that because you're from I am Mississippi. From,
2: but I do pronounce all of these syllables.
0: Okay. I think we've already gone we'll off We've Lost our
2: audience. We're done. Before we
0: even started. So, <laughs> let's kick off with what's going on in the news.
2: I can start us off this week. So, I found an article about our favorite travel disruptor, Airbnb, They are actually moving forward with a luxury acquisition. The company that they are purchasing is called... If I can scroll down and find the article name.
3: Take your time. (laughs) Need the Jeopardy music. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Everyone's buckled up. They're ready for this.
2: Should I start over?
0: No, go ahead. Okay.
2: It's luxuryretreats.com. It was buried in the article. The article was actually on um, luxurydaily.com. So this is their largest acquisition to date and it really speaks volumes to the demand that they've had on the luxury end and so I was curious about what the definition like where do you draw the line as to what a luxury rental is so I went and checked out this other website luxuryretreats.com super high-end stuff so I just happened to look up Turks and Caicos because I would love to go to the beach and they've got houses starting anywhere from three grand to ten grand plus per night per night yeah So definitely moving in a much different direction. I feel like a lot of people like Airbnb because it has been more affordable options than hotels in many cities. So this is definitely a a different direction for them. But I think it's a smart move. I mean, clearly, if the demand is there, why not?
3: Call it baller Airbnb.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and we've talked for a while on this podcast about we feel like eventually Airbnb is going to start mopping up inventory. You know, it's interesting they're starting in this space with something... The super niche, but it it doesn't surprise me that they go in and actually buying inventory themselves. Then they get more margin, you know.
2: This one is eighteen grand a night. Like I cannot even fathom paying that much per night for a property. Twenty guests, so obviously you split it with, you know, all of your friends, but
1: So I don't have the bank account to make eighteen thousand dollar a night purchases. But do those customers typically book their own travel or do they use an Airbnb type service? You know, I was kind of wondering if if they're going to take a vacation, is that the people who you have people that do that for you? Right. Yeah,
2: like, but I those like people still have to
0: research, though, right? They're going to go find something unique, and everyone's so focused on the experience right now and doing something unique. Uh, it, you know, someone's booking these because that business already existed. It just now has transitioned not just to its own website, but also on Airbnb. I doubt they'll shut down the existing website, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering what they would do with the inventory, if that would just be roped in with all the other airbnb inventory or now what working?
3: kind of what kind of places are these are these like mansions or what
2: uh, i mean they all look pretty spacious i mean i'm just looking at one location but all the ones that i'm seeing listed here could fit 10 20 guests easily okay
3: so. so it almost could be like a luxury group travel
2: sure and I'm, I'm imagining too if it's somewhere like manhattan it might be a really nice penthouse suite that okay. perhaps can't fit 20 people but it's in a really prime location so that's going to demand that price
0: yeah and i think watch this space because it's starting with this luxury kind of niche market but i would not be surprised if airbnb went out and bought other inventory at a more economical scale you know whether it's hotels or whether it's you know apartment complexes we've talked before about how the the rental situation long-term rentals in in major cities you know your mom misha's in new orleans and a lot of the inventory that used to be on the market for locals is, is gone to Airbnb because they're mm-hmm. making more money that way. So it only makes sense that Airbnb are going to invest some of their profits back into
1: capital in the form of inventory. You know, one thing to consider here, here too, and I'm going to kind of use this as a segue to the next news item, but it seems like Airbnb is in the process of basically stockpiling inventory because it seems as if the rental space is really gonna be the next battle from an OTA perspective. You know, one of the things that I'm looking at here is there's an article in Forbes that just came out on the 9th where Expedia ended up missing its earnings expectations for the quarter, but some of their new acquisitions are really starting to pay off. Uh, In particular, their acquisition of HomeAway, Expedia purchased HomeAway back in November of 2015, and they were siloed off for about a year. Now, in October of last year of 2016, HomeAway inventory started showing up on Expedia. Well, in the last couple of days, you're now seeing about 800,000 results from Expedia listings showing up on HomeAway. So you can see, you know, Airbnb on one side and Expedia on the other side, really starting to get into, you know, this space where there could be some real competition, you know, for that more of a, a rental type experience versus a true hotel.
0: Yeah and let, let's be honest I you know I think inventory is really important but that's not what they're fighting over right they're fighting over the guest and owning the guest data and the controlling what the guest does and obviously the more diverse inventory you have at your disposal the more likely you are to keep that guest booking through you right you
1: have to have all aspects of right you know the space yeah. I wonder
3: though I wonder though, if that's if the guest is going to an Airbnb or Homeway, is that what they're looking for? Do they want to stay in a hotel, or were they looking for a different type of experience? It's kind of, I, I think it, it
0: depends. You know, a lot of people have in mind what they want to stay in. No question. There's a lot of people look at a destination like Myrtle Beach and compare that to North Myrtle Beach, right? The, to most people that don't know the market, they probably don't differentiate. But North Myrtle Beach has a lot more beachfront rental properties that will have 8, 9, 10 bedrooms, sleep a whole family and more. And in Myrtle Beach, there's a lot more of the resort-type properties that one, two-bedroom. So you, you see a difference in demographic. You see a difference in the type of vacationer in just a few-mile difference between the two destinations. But I don't think it's exclusive. I don't think that the person, just because that annual uh, family vacation, they want to spend in that beach rental, that they don't also travel other times of the year and look for hotel inventory so again i think this is more about expedia slash home away trying to own the guest regardless of what their intent is because these people that are vacationing with their extended family may also travel for business may also travel with just their spouse on valentine's day you know so it, it's about understanding that full journey and everything that that one customer wants to do and having the inventory available, so where whatever it is, you can control it.
2: Sure, I completely agree. Just because you know, let's again using Myrtle Beach as the example, we get a lot of families that come in the summer. Let's say you know you want that full beach house experience. That's not to say, like Stuart mentioned, you go on business trips or whatever. I think just them having that exposure and them educating people that we're not just for hotels or with HomeAway, we're not just for rentals. We can cover the full spectrum of your travel needs. I feel like that's the direction they're moving in, and I'm almost wondering if. They're going to take more of an Airbnb approach where they're starting to build local travel guides or a TripAdvisor approach, just building up their content as well. You know, it seems like they've done a lot of work on the inventory side, but then trying to get in front of people before they're ready to book an accommodation when they're just, you know, thinking about where they want to travel to, kind of in that dreaming stage. You know, I could see them moving in that direction pretty soon as well.
0: Agreed. All right, so that's it for the news. So let's jump into our main topic. And this was a an article on hotelnewsnow.com. And they're basically talking about the five things. Can you tell me the title? Because I completely fluffed it. I forgot what the title was. It is
2: Five Things Hotelers Must Know About Mobile Behaviors.
0: There you go. Mobile or mobile? Mobile. Mobile. Not Alabama.
2: Not Alabama. This okay. will be a mobile device, a phone, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. So Hotel News Now is, is a good resource. I mean, it's one of the, the ones that I look at you know, several times a week, mm-hmm. and, and they have a lot of good articles on there. This one, why, why did it pique your interest, Misha?
2: Well, I just think there's been so many articles. I mean, the past two years, really, has all been about mobile, mobile, mobile. And I felt like this one did a nice job of just top-level, here's five things if you're a hoteler these are what you need to know. So I thought it was a nice summary. and I thought, you know, the four of us would have some interesting points to talk about.
0: All right. Yeah. So let's jump in. What's number one point?
2: So number one is, which I feel like it's self-explanatory, but I also feel like a lot of people who aren't in the data just don't fully understand this. So mobile is not emerging. It is omnipresent, meaning it's not like next year or the year after that we're projecting mobile is going to be a big thing. Like we have already reached the mobile tipping point. Right,
3: That happened back in what, 2014 for 2014. most sites yeah. where, where your mobile traffic passed your desktop traffic. Yeah,
1: sure. This is more of like a, duh, yeah. Yeah, we all yeah. know this.
3: It's not emerging. But I still Good feel point.
2: like there's people that just don't, you know, if you're not looking at your data, it's not in your face every day. Like this needs to be reiterated until we're all on the same page about this.
0: Yeah, and you know, Misha and I did a presentation for the local South Carolina chapter of HSMAI, you know, a couple of months ago now. It was we were talking about the trends of twenty seventeen, and we covered that in a in episode what thirty nine of the this podcast. But the first thing we started with when we're talking about what are the trends for twenty seventeen, the things to pay attention to, we we started out by saying we are not going to talk about mobile because it's not a trend to look at in twenty seventeen. It's something that has been established we should all have it front of mind if you're building a new website if you're not building it mobile first thinking about it from the ground up mobile 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 then you make a mistake because more than 50 percent of traffic to your website go look at your google analytics we don't have a client anymore where more than 50 where less than 50 percent of the traffic is coming from mobile we don't have a single client
1: yeah, and that should be what you look for in 2017 is when you need to proof your site, go to your phone, not to your desktop. Yeah. That's where you need to see how that customer first experiences your brand because yeah. they do not first experience it on the desktop. That's where they may convert, but that first visit is mobile, mobile, mobile. And it's a hard habit to break, even for us.
0: You know, and we'd, I'd say we're tech savvy. I think we're, we're, we skew younger when I look at our employees. But we still struggle to get our developers even to test on mobile first because they're developing on a desktop, you know, and and that's the environment they're used to using. So to pull out their mobile device and look at that form change they made or the layout change they just made on their mobile device, it, it takes reinforcement. We have to preach it every day to get people to remember it.
1: And one of the most important things to remember there is a mobile emulator on your desktop is not a mobile device You know, so many times I'll see a developer say, yeah, everything looks perfectly fine. I looked at it, you know, on an iPhone 6S on my computer, it looks fine. You pull out an iPhone 6S, you look at it, no, it's not fine. So you really do need to have a bank of a few devices handy to check out your your site.
0: Yeah, and and it transcends just the website too, right? Because you think about how people consume any information, Facebook being a prime example of that. So... How many people, I mean, I, I don't remember the last time I went to Facebook on a desktop for personal use. I mean, I'll use it at work for clients, whatever. But when I'm just scanning through the news feed on Facebook, it's always in the app on my mobile phone. Mm-hmm. So when I'm seeing ads or content from other businesses and I click on it and it lands me something that is not mobile friendly or mobile first thinking... It drives me insane, and it's got to crush crush their conversion rate when they do stuff like that. So there's these developers that are building stuff on a desktop, testing it on a desktop, and then the consumer's landing on it on a mobile device. There's a disconnect, and you've got to change the philosophy. New York Times did something really interesting a couple of years ago when they were really trying to hone, the, the drill this down to everyone in their office, and uh, they actually switched off the desktop version of their website Within their office, you couldn't load it on your desktop. So the only way you could access the website was through your mobile device from when you were on the Wi-Fi, and and it's extreme. I'm not saying everyone should go do that, but it really hit home for a lot of them why, you know, why it was important and got them to change their behavior.
2: Sure, and I think it's interesting you mentioned Facebook in the article. They actually do have some stats to back up some of the you know points that they're making here. One of which was um, a representative from Facebook said that. Facebook reaches more than 1 billion people for per day and 20% of people's time is spent on their mobile devices. In addition to that, 71% of internet activity originates on a mobile device. Like that is huge 1 billion people per day, just on Facebook. And then just taking a step back, looking at some mobile stats in general, there are now more connected devices in the world than there are people. And on average, there are four devices per person, which is insane. And then they projected—this seems a little extreme to me—but nonetheless, they projected that that number is expected to grow to seven devices per person by 2027. Yeah,
3: we're talking about you know the emergence of wearables. I know they're not necessarily the greatest things right now, but they're going to get better. Sure. Everybody's going to have multiple things on them. At least everybody has a phone right now, but it's going to be more and more. I mean, we're talking. The Google contacts and things like that. that well, this weekend
1: I had to. We replaced two of the plugs in our kitchen with plugs that had the USB ports on them because we originally had just one plug that had two USB ports, and we're using those up. They're constantly already spoken for, so I added two more plugs that have the USB ports, and they get filled up immediately between people's Fitbits, people's phones, people's tablets. You need you to stop
0: letting so many people come into
1: your house. Right? I know. I should have invested in locks instead of... Really, right? <laughs> Actually, can I
2: just send some stuff home with you at night so you can charge it for me? <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if I agree with that projection,
0: and, and I'll tell you why. If you look back in the early 1900s in London, when the government met, the local council met, the biggest problem, the biggest challenge facing them in the early 1900s was there was not enough space to build stables. ...for the horses because everyone got around in horses and because because the population was growing so quickly, more horses were needed to transport everyone around. This was in the early 1900s. Well, what happened right after that, right? The invention of the automobile and cars started taking over and it completely negated the need. So they were doing all this planning and spending all this money trying to build more stables in inner city London when just five, ten years later, it became completely a moot point because and one was now using these motorized vehicles, right? And they turn the stables into
3: garages? I or guess garage so, yeah. And if you, you go
0: around it? certain areas of, of England, you can still see where they've converted stables into houses and gar- garages and stuff like that. But I don't know if we're going to continue getting more devices. Right now, yes, every device we have is is connected in some way. It's the Internet of Things, right? But I think technology is going to get to a point through... Uh, whether it's implants or some kind of augmented humans, that we're going to have a centralized device that talks intelligently to everything else, I think, eventually. But,
1: but those are well, still the connected devices. I mean, if, if you ever want to see something kind of interesting, go to your your wireless router and look at all the devices that are currently connected to it. Yeah, And, and you forget that if you have a smart TV, that's connected. If you have an you know, Amazon Echo or Google Home, that's connected. Yeah, there there's so many connected devices in your life that you really don't think about.
3: I think Stuart's point, though, is like when we're talking about that device that takes over them all, right? The, the, the Google contacts with the, with the HUD that pops mm-hmm. up and, and you can see everything. It can project a TV on your wall. You don't, know, you don't need a smart TV anymore. Mm-hmm. That'll just project out there. Those type of things will eliminate the phones, the, the tablets, the watches, this, that, and everything. Might be less devices in a few years than more. You know,
2: I'd like to just point out that I'm really impressed that Stuart remembers that far back, because you're only like <laughs> yeah. one or two years old in the early nineteen hundreds. <laughs> yeah. That's really impressive. Uh,
0: funny, but they're Not on metric true. time. Not true, <laughs> metric time.
2: Oh, this is. True. <laughs> what's the conversion rate for that? I don't know.
0: All lies, lies. Yes. All right. So, what's point number two?
2: Point number two, which I think is a valid point that we can also agree with, is that there is a sea of data available to be used. And I almost wish Melissa, our analytics director, was here to speak on this because there is so much that you can be tracked, and not only can it be tracked, but you should be tracking it. That point aside, I feel like where a lot of people struggle is they're tracking all this stuff, and that's great, but then what do we what do we do from here? Like where do we go? What do we do with all this information? So I think You really need to either work with, whether that's somebody in-house or with an agency or firm that has some type of data science or analytics background, Um, you know, or you really need to, if that's not an option, you really need to start digging in there and figuring out what you can do with this stuff because it really is important to not just track things, but know what you're tracking, know how to segment it, you know, know who these people are that are coming to your site and making something valuable out of all that data you're collecting.
1: I mean, it's so true. With with all that data that's out there, you need someone else to look at it. But what you also need to do is make sure that you've clearly defined your KPIs or your key performance indicators for your marketing. And those could be a little bit different from a mobile device versus a regular desktop. That's fine. But just define those so that when you are looking at the data, you're looking at actionable data. We see it happen so many times where a client is concerned that, you know their bounce rate is more than they think it should be. And then when you drill down to it, you find out that that's kind of an irrelevant metric. I think we've talked about that in the past, but if you don't have a true KPI or metric tied to what you're measuring, it's gonna send you down a rabbit hole where you just keep looking at reports and reports that you never get the information you need.
2: Sure, and I think you need to know how to slice and dice this several ways. You know, Looking at the customer journey, where people are entering on your website, whether they are entering from a natural search, for example, or an email or a pay per click campaign, you know, so looking at it that way. And then also, you know, what percentage of your traffic is coming in through mobile, what percentage are are coming in through sales or what percentage of your revenue is coming in through mobile, you know, looking at all of your KPIs, breaking it down by device type, desktop versus mobile, um, you know, looking at your different channels, there's just so many ways that you can look at this, but then you can start matching that with you know, where the people are on the customer journey. I think we've talked about in the past where while we are still seeing a high amount of traffic coming in through mobile, the sales and the revenue aren't quite there yet. You know, they're catching up, but it is a slightly slower adoption rate for people booking on their phones. Um, So just keeping an eye on that as well and making sure that, you know, while your traffic is going up, you want to continue to improve your website, you know, improve your marketing to get those mobile sales and revenue up as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things why people dismiss mobile is because they look at it from just the conversion and revenue standpoint. And and you're right, it doesn't it doesn't match when you look at traffic, but these are the same people. Mm-hmm. They're just at different points in their travel planning journey. You know, a lot of people now start the research on a mobile device and then at some point switch over to a desktop. And really the what the what we're really lacking in any meaningful way is the bridge between that data, right? There's, there's no one, there's a few people trying to do it. I think Google is probably going to be the one that ultimately wins, but no one's really bridging the gap to say Pete DiMaio started on this mobile phone, then went to his tablet, then went back to his phone, then came to the desktop and that's when he booked. Like
3: that is something we're missing unless someone's logged in for some reason. Yeah, Google's the closest one to having that cross device tracking as it is now but nobody's nobody's doing it perfectly and i don't know that we're ever really yeah. going to get there because we run into privacy issues and all types of stuff type, types of things when you're talking about tracking people device to device and and what they're doing across the web
0: yeah i mean i think we'll get there uh, you know i think for for hotels especially the big chains if, if you've got a loyalty program and you've got a reason for people to log in uh, it's easier you know we work in some ways with some other non-hotel clients like retail clients and it's a lot easier to track those people because mm-hmm. they typically are <laughs> logged into an account of some form between mobile and, and mobile app and desktop so we can see that data but it's not just web data either I think the other thing that people are missing is is augmenting the, the web analytics data with other data that you might have in your PMS or from other sources right so you know, what that, which is what really what spawned for us the fuel gauge analytics dashboard, right? That's why we created that product because we were struggling to see the, the relationship between what's going on on, say, OTA distribution versus what's going on in your website. And, and I've, I've said this before on the podcast, but we used to run into situations where a client would come to us and say, or we'd raise the flag for a client and say, your conversion rate on your website just dropped. What's going on? And, and we couldn't really accurately see what was going on holistically. So we'd have to dig and it would take us a while to figure out the, the ultimate problem, which was they just dumped their rates on the OTAs and it caused a massive drop in conversion rate on the website. With the fuel gauge analytics dashboard, we're now able to see that. Together right because we're laying data from multiple sources over each other It's real
3: clear when you see one graph going down and one graph going up and they're right right. next to Mm -hmm. each other
0: Exactly, so I think that's the problem people have with analytics is they're looking at things in isolation Whether it's just bounce rate like Pete said and not taking that into context or they're just looking at mobile conversions versus desktop conversions and not taking into consideration where they are in the funnel so you really got to step back when you're looking at analytics and really think critically. And analytics, as much as I wish it were black and white, the, the, the information is black and white, but the extrapolation and the understanding and, and how you take that and formulate action items from it is not black and white because there's always nuances. And you can misinterpret data. And I've seen so many times people misinterpret data and then go off on a mm-hmm. tangent and then say, whoa, 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 why are you doing that? And they'll they'll try to
3: prove their case. And we're
0: like, that is not what that data says to us.
3: You know? And mobile might be the biggest offender of that when they don't see the conversions and the revenue coming through their mobile. And they say, cut mobile. We're not running on mobile. Exactly. No, no, no. Hold on. That's your awareness. And, and that's completely missed when they don't see the revenue coming from it. Exactly.
2: And we see that a lot, particularly with blog content that does a fantastic job of driving traffic to the website, but then you start a conversation, well, why isn't this converting better? You know, what can we do? And obviously conversion at the end of the day is fantastic, but you need to take a step back and say, We're driving this traffic here, we're generating that awareness, we're building that relationship. Let's see if we can grab an email, something, you know, a little a little less off than a straight up sale.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about this before as well in terms of last-click analytics and the mistake that people make just looking at where did someone come immediately before booking mm-hmm. and not thinking about the attribution of what happened before that. So great example of that is what we've seen has a lot of value is maybe in between long tail and, and broad searches. So I'll give an example. If I'm a hotel in Jackson Hole, and I, someone's searching for Jackson Hole Hotels with a lazy river, right? It's kind of not specific to my property, but it's not so broad that it's just Jackson Hole Hotels. I might land on a hotel's blog that talks about this lazy river or the water features, and I might not convert right then because I'm still doing my research and I'm comparing it to other sites. And I might land on maybe Expedia when I do that. I might land on the Chambers site a, a local portal when i'm doing that and the individual hotel site but then i'm going to bounce back to the search engine and i'm going to narrow down my search and now i might go back and search for a specific brand name of hotel because i saw that they had the lazy river right <laughs> landed on their blog read about it liked it come back to search search for that brand name then come back into the site from a paid ad now the paid ad's getting 100% attribution that's where in when they're looking at last click analytics that paid ad is that generated a hundred percent of that revenue and they've completely lost the the dots that were joined that said well you know what actually first they landed on that blog and that's what led them to search for the brand which led them to click on the ad and people just aren't looking at it in in from that further back view they're looking at it too. It's too myopic
1: yeah and we've seen that on a few properties where we do have a Brand campaign, for at least from a pay-per-click perspective, brand campaign, an amenities campaign, and then sometimes a broad campaign. And those amenities-based campaigns always do pretty well over time. Mm -hmm. You know, one example, like you said, is the water park. You're looking for when that customer first gives an indicator that they've gone beyond the destination selection and are now at resort selection. And, you know, the early bird gets the worm, so to say, is if you can be the first one there to get their attention, to tell them about the... The water park on property at least you've gotten a little share of their mind as they're going through that decision process
2: yeah and i know that there are ways in google analytics and i'm assuming adobe if you have that software as well that you can look at different attribution models and you can go full funnel and see you know what is the very first click they had and there's models where you can give partial attribution to every click along the way so you know if you have someone on staff that can do it or if you can do it as well it's definitely something interesting to look at it'll give you a lot of insight
0: yeah, like in Adobe Analytics, they, they used to have a separate product. when Back when it was called Omniture, they had a separate product called Discover. And that product used to cost like $100,000 a year. It was an expensive product. And now it's rolled into Adobe Analytics. So if you are using Adobe Analytics or some premium software, then look to see if they have that multi-touch point. Because when we, when we look at, say, revenue from a blog article and we look at last click versus... Lifetime value of that blog. It's a very different number that you come up with when you're when you're developing attribution models For multi touch point. So definitely look at that I mean, we're here to help too if that's something that you just don't have time to focus on because it it is complex It does take time to to spend on it and and a level of expertise using the software that you're tracking on but uh, it's definitely worthwhile because you start realizing that the assumptions you're making based on last click data are not accurate assumptions. Absolutely. So what is number three?
2: Number three is a fun one. It is that there's a fine line between help, being helpful and being creepy, which this does this applies to not just mobile, pretty much everything in life. Yes. It's a fine line to balance. But in the hotel context – So collecting data on your guests can be very great, it can be very helpful, and provide a more personalized guest experience. But from the guest perspective, that can also feel somewhat invasive. So it's really important that when you're collecting this data, you're doing everything you can to establish the trust, you wanna communicate the privacy, and use the data for good, not evil. You know, Really provide a clear value proposition and use this data to personalize whatever offers, or whatever you know, device type, if that's the thing, using specific call to actions or using remarketing lists. There's a lot of things you can do with this, but make sure you're using that data properly.
1: Yeah, there's so much data out there that you can very easily become creepy. I think the hotel industry in general is so far behind in mm-hmm. terms of a personalized experience. Sure. That's something that I think every hotel really needs to strive for in 2017. If you look back, there was an article back in 2012 where Target really got in trouble for this. This is kind of going to more of a retail example, but this one girl who had her own Target card got a flyer in the mail for baby cribs, you know, infant diapers, things like that, and her father flipped out, went to Target, and basically went to the Target store and asked the manager, why are you sending my daughter this stuff? You know, she's 16 years old. What are you trying to do? Encourage her to get pregnant. And, you know, the manager obviously had no idea. He doesn't send out the direct mails himself. It goes through corporate. Oh, really? Yeah, believe it or not, that's not what they do. Weird. The individual targets. But about two or three weeks later, the guy came back in and apologized to the manager because his daughter was, in fact, pregnant and due in August. And what Target does, and they actually still do this, they pulled back a lot based on this example from their their marketing, <laughs> is they look at any other products you buy, and the products you may purchase next. So they she bought a pregnancy test kit. <clears throat> well, no, no, not even that much. She may have started buying vitamins more frequently than she had in the past. She may have been buying different types of lotion or something like that. Where, you know, Target's algorithm basically said, okay, this person you know, should now start getting ads for Buying baby pickles crips. and ice cream. Right, <laughs> exactly. But that data is out there. Target mm-hmm. went above and beyond. Granted, this was in 2012, so they're still trying to, you know, feeling their way around in it. But it really does show you that even from a hotel's perspective, there's a ton of data out there. And to use it the right way can be very engaging and connect with your guest. But if you go too far, then you become that guy that's sure looking in their and i feel like
2: we've all seen ads i mean i've seen on my phone specifically i'll be you know browsing amazon in their app or whatever it might be and then later i'm on um you know we we'll use mashable as an example i'll be looking at an article on mashable and then i'll get an ad for something on amazon that i was literally just looking at but it'll be like hey misha we noticed ball and I maybe mean, just it's just like a little mm-hmm. bit too much so i feel like there's definitely like a line you know whether that's serving ads too quickly or whether that's you might not want to use everybody's full name in the ad or wherever it might be. I mean, there's a line that can be crossed. And there's also, and you don't want I mean,
3: it. kind of aside from the creepiness, there's a frequency cap. Don't make people sure. angry either. Make sure you're only showing enough times where, you know, they remember you, mm-hmm. but they're not annoyed by you. Sure. There's also that, that fine line as well.
1: Yeah, and, it, and the goal with personalization is not to necessarily use the information to say, hey, Misha, I see that you enjoy staring out the balcony of room 214 at our hotel <laughs> change that to be in that blue dress right <laughs> you know, Yeah. change that to be you're promoting the fact that you have great ocean views you have great balconies if you know that that's something that misha's mm-hmm. into
0: yeah i agree I, I think it's a balance you know as a consumer I, I actually like it i'm not one of these people that gets all paranoid about big brother watching me because i understand that the, the intent is to improve my experience and yes some people they, they make mistakes. I actually like it when someone like Amazon or, or Hotel, whoever it is, retargets me, with, especially when it's a deal, and I actually save money that way. That, that I really do appreciate. And I'd much rather see relevant contextual ads than just random crap that oh, sure. I'm mm-hmm. not interested in. Which whatsoever. I feel like people
2: are slowly getting more comfortable with. I think yeah. a couple years ago, it was just people were super against it and now it's just become the norm and they're yeah. fine with
0: it. And and I think it, it, we're to blame in some ways, not us individually personally, but marketers, right? Because I think anytime there's an opportunity to exploit the consumer, <laughs> marketers just go, they dial it up to 11 and and they look at pop-ups, right? As an example, look at, Anything throughout history, we ruin it because we just... Email marketing is a prime example, right? Because it was really effective and then people spammed the crap out of everyone and it became less effective over time. And social media is the same way. It used to be effective to market on social media in very simple ways, but now you have to be really strategic because so many bad marketers ruined it for everyone else that the algorithms got smarter and said, this is not what people want to see. So we as marketers, I think, have a duty to... Be, be cautious, but use it in a smart way. And I think in in the target example, what they did is they made an extrapolation, right? They built together a profile and made an assumption that someone was pregnant. In this case, it was right. I don't think we need to go that far as marketers. I don't think we need to make, you know, get collect A, B, and C and, and jump to Z. But I think if we know A, B, and C, then we can leverage that data and say we know that data and, and use it to help The guest, and I think that's the key. If we're doing it genuinely because it makes a better experience, it helps the guest. It's useful for the guest, then it's gonna be effective. But when you're doing it to manipulate the guest or do something that's in your interest and not their interest, that's when it crosses the line. It gets creepy, and you're gonna get backlash. Example of that is the airline industry, that was you know manipulating date rate data, right? So they were retargeting people that came to their site once and then they target them with an an ad saying oh you can get a discounted rate and then they were leaving and then they were coming back to the website and they'd see another ad that was even less you know it that that to me is not right because you're training a a guest or a, a a flyer in this case to in a certain behavior that isn't really good for them like you're making them jump through hoops to get the best rate just Uh, show them the best rate. that's already
2: happening with retail i feel like because now you've got all these sites like retail me not where they collect promo Mm -hmm. codes because every website has a promo box for you to buy something so i'm assuming i'm not the only one that does this but if i go to pretty much any website and i see they have a promo box i'm going to open up a new tab and type in brand name promo codes and honestly nine times out of ten actually this happened with a hotel i think i talked about it on one of our first episodes but they had a promo box and i searched for promo code for that hotel it was a hotel in charleston and i saved like 60 or 80 bucks Mm -hmm. by just searching for a discount and i think we've trained people to do that so we want to obviously not do that by the way if you're a hotel you should probably take off that promo code box and find a different way to do that yeah
0: if you want to do promos there's a different way to do it you know send them unique urls or a unique page that has a promo box don't put it on every single search because you're right we, we've done tests that prove that if you have a, a, a button or a window there or a, um, a text box there that says promo code you're gonna decrease your conversion rate. It's not gonna increase your conversion rate because people are gonna think, "Well, I'm not getting the best deal," and if they can't find that coupon on Retail Me Not, wherever it is, they're not gonna convert. They're gonna go book somewhere else. So don't show that unless everyone is. You're expecting everyone to get that. Yeah, someone uh, that could approach your
3: sale too. I mean, what if, but if I'm running <laughs> PPC hats on what's your hotel brand name Coupons, promo code yeah. and I pick off your sale? I mean, yeah. there's there's that out there too. How did we get there
0: from data? Was that like data being creepy? Creepy, creepy Is that yeah. what it was? I
2: feel like we've gone off on a lot of tangents, yeah. but it's fine, it's all relevant.
0: Well, yeah, all right, what's next?
2: Number four is, and I think this is not exclusive to apps, but in this particular article they say, think of your end goal when developing apps. And again, some point that we have hit on a lot in this podcast is there are a lot of hotels that have mobile apps and a majority of them are not that great. I think we've seen some strides in this. We just talked about um, Marriott last week. They're revamping their entire, entire mobile app experience. So I think it's getting there. It's getting better. But there are a lot of questions that you want to consider whenever you're thinking of developing a mobile app. And you need to have that end goal in mind before you start throwing out your design. Because I feel like a lot of hotels, when they started their mobile app they're like oh we want something pretty and it was more design focused and it wasn't really focused on that end goal on the user experience
0: yeah it was a me too mentality right and everyone just assumed i've got a mobile website let me just port that over to the to the app and that, that that's completely ridiculous but i think we're getting to version you know version two or version three in some cases of the mobile app for a lot of properties marriott is a prime example where after they purchased starwood they learned a lot from what Starwood was doing. Starwood was a smaller, more nimble, more innovative brand, I feel like, than Marriott. And so Marriott's looking at them and saying, well, you actually were doing things that we hadn't thought about, we thought about, we hadn't had the balls to do yet. So you know, hats off to Marriott for taking that and, and, and running with it. But like we said in last week's episode, Hilton spent $2.5 million developing their app, allegedly. And that is a ton of money to be spending on, on R&D, on a product that really is not that complicated when you think about it. I mean,
3: most hotel apps aren't aren't there to drive bookings. We know that, right? I mean, it's, it's more for a a usefulness for the guest. It's going to help them when they're on property. It's going to make their stay better. That's the kind of thing. I mean, at least in my mind, gonna help you get a you know a better review at the end of the day. Yeah better than it experience. is gonna drive a drive yeah, I think, a a think it's different booking. if you're
0: an OTA, right? I think hotels sure. tonight, I, I think if you're looking at Expedio and how they've created a frictionless booking where you don't even have to put in information, you just kinda swipe and it does the transaction. That that makes sense for the OTA. And I think we'll get there with hotels too. But you
2: know, well, I think for hotels, you know, the primary people and I think it was in the Marriott article where they've said, you know, the primary users of our app that Drive bookings are the business travelers and the loyalty members. So I think mm-hmm. if you've got people on lock like that, absolutely they're using it for bookings. But I do agree with Phil. You're trying to create that seamless experience. And that could be from an operational perspective as well. You know, So check in and check out, making that a seamless experience. Um, messaging, which we'll actually talk about in just a minute with our next point. Um, having some useful information about whether it's on-property things to do, the restaurant hours, um, you know, the restaurant phone call number if you want to make a reservation, but off-property things to do as well. So making it as useful as possible and at the end of the day, giving them a great experience that leads to better reviews, higher ADR, all this good stuff that we talk about all the time.
0: Yeah, but it's a chicken and egg thing, right? The reason that the Marriotts and the Hiltons of the world have business travelers using their app is because the only functionality that's actually useful in there is geared towards business travelers, right? There's nothing in there that, as a as a regular leisure traveler, consumer, it, there's no benefit to me other than maybe mobile, use my mobile phone to unlock the door. What else is there? They're not using it to enhance my yeah. experience. They're not helping me in any way.
1: In the in the Marriott app in particular, I've used that one several times, and every time I download it, I try to use it to check in. And it's yeah. always such a frustrating experience because they do not do a good job. I mean, the way I see apps is it is the app is only valuable when it can do things for the guest and improve your business relationship with them beyond what the website can do. If you're just using the app to and you don't have any specific goal for it, hey, let's put our website on the app, let's tell them the weather, let's do this, let's let them book a hotel room. That stuff's not valuable to a customer. They already have an app called Safari or Chrome or whatever it is on their phone that they can do all that stuff on. What you need to focus on from your app's perspective are those things that enhance your customer's experience. Things like the push message, letting them know that you have a free concierge service, letting them know they can do an express check-in and save the line. Just ways you can communicate and give that guest more value right in their pocket than you could ever do with a website.
2: Yeah, and I like the direction that Marriott is moving in. It hasn't been, their new app version hasn't launched yet, but one of the things that they were talking about doing with this new version is serving a different home screen based on whether or not you have an upcoming reservation, which I think is a great idea because obviously if you've already booked your stay, you don't want to see a screen about booking your stay. You know, So segmenting people that way I think is really smart, and I'm curious to see how that works out.
0: Yeah, it's about personalization, making it relevant to the individual and making the mobile app a utility for people and not just a why am i downloading this what's the value in it but that that kind of leads i mean i think the biggest value is the communication which leads to point number five
2: yes so our last point for the article is that mobile can bring staff closer to guests and i definitely agree we've again something we've talked about before is that a lot of people just hate having to talk to or deal with other people so that's sometimes seen as a hassle if you need you know extra towels or an extra pillow or something's not right with the room or you're your key doesn't work. It's become deactivated. Whatever it might be, you've got to go all the way down to the front desk. You've got to wait in line if it's prime time. You know, you, there's just a lot of first world problems happening with the hotel experience. <laughs> so having an app that can alleviate some of that perceived frustration, I think, is really great. And it's something that I think we've seen this past year in particular is really emerging. There's a lot of companies popping up that are offering these types of services.
1: I think that's that's so true. I mean, if, if you can make your guests feel better about those services, that's one of the reasons, like, whenever I order food, you know, at a restaurant, you know, typically to go, I always order online because I know I fill out the form. That's exactly what I want. I hit submit, and I know that it's been done. I know, you know, it should be at the property. You know, so many times if you pick up the phone and you dial and it just rings and rings for the concierge mm-hmm. or you get to somebody and you're not sure if they actually understood what you wanted – it makes it very easy for the guest to communicate with the property, but it also lets the property do such a good job communicating back to the guest, hey, we've got your request, you know, so-and-so in housekeeping will be in your room within five minutes.
2: Sure, and I think these are great platforms, whether it's something that's rolled into your mobile app if you have one, or if you're using a third party for this, great. I think it's something every hotel should look into, but I think the important part of that equation is having the resources on property that can handle those requests because if you have it you're definitely gonna to want to promote it and then once people start using it you don't want to be overwhelmed
0: yeah and I don't think people look at this the right way because if if you think about this would you ever at a hotel consider not having enough people at the front desk to respond to requests right you wouldn't so why is it different on a different medium if you have a guest that is in need of something then, then figure out a way to staff it so that people can respond, you know. And, and the other benefit, I think, of the, the mobile app is not just that you can field requests that are being instigated or initiated by the guest, but you can actually initiate conversation with the guest that you've never been able to do before. Yeah, you could call the room and say, is everything satisfactory? But the chances are you're not going to get them because people aren't spending the majority of their time on their vacation in their room. So now you can send a push notification through a mobile device and say, is everything satisfactory? Let us know if it's not. Or, hey, did you know it's happy hour in, the, in 30 minutes at the bar? So people can be aware of what's going on. You've never been able to do that in the hospitality industry before. So now we can really embrace the guest and really send messages that not only are helpful to the guest and improve the guest experience, but also drive revenue to me as the hotelier because I can put people where I want them to be they're going to attend my events more frequently they're going to utilize my amenities more frequently so this is really win-win
3: territory and something that's never been achievable before in the hospitality industry yeah, I think it's a, it's a excuse me it's a good way to head off a bad review also if you're the if you're reaching out to them and you're communicating with the guest making sure that they're happy at all points of the stay you know they're much less likely to leave a bad review for you that's just I mean for me that's I wouldn't leave a bad review if I'm if I didn't first say, hey, you know, I don't like this or I don't have enough towels or there isn't this in my room.
0: If the hotel gives the guests an opportunity to to raise a problem and then the hotel has the opportunity to fix the problem before they leave, then 9 out of 10, they're not going to leave a bad review. But the problem is hotels turn a blind eye. Once the guest's in-house, they don't care about them anymore. They're moving on to trying to get the next guest in-house. And like Pete said again and again on this podcast – when a guest is on property, that's when you're starting the next sales funnel. That's when you're trying to get them to stay again. And the best way to do that is to ensure that they have a great experience. So what a lot of our clients are doing, they're utilizing our um, Guest Express mobile app technology. And they're sending, during the stay, they're sending those satisfaction surveys to say, is everything okay? Or rate us on these criteria, whether it's cleanliness, whether it's uh, friendliness, whatever it is. Tell us and rate us now while you're here And if there's a red flag, if someone's rating you as a one out of five on cleanliness during the stay, then send the manager up to the room and fix it now. Because now it's easy to fix. Mm -hmm. Once it's on every review site out there and a thousand people have seen that review, you can't fix that. It's, It's unfixable.
1: And more often than not, if a guest has a problem and you go over the top to fix it, you actually have given yourself a leg up on getting that person to come back because they realize that you know, as a hotel, they're in tune to my needs as a guest. They're paying attention to me. Yeah, I had a problem, but the way they fixed it, it makes me hope I have a problem again because of the way they treated me.
2: Exactly. Can I share a slightly relevant but entertaining story? Sure. So there is a Chinese restaurant right across the street from my house and I could easily, even on the way home from work, just pop over, grab some Chinese, call it a day. But I am lazy and sometimes hungover on Sundays, and Chinese food is great for that. So instead of going across the street to grab Chinese, I found a restaurant that's like eight miles away, but they have a mobile app where I can order my Chinese food, not have to talk to anybody, get the order exactly right, And then they deliver it to my house, and it's the best thing ever. And the kicker is they have like a $15 minimum, so I have to order like an obscene amount of Chinese (laughs) Chinese food to even get it delivered. But I still do it because I don't have to go through the hassle of talking to a person or going across the street. It's convenience, and it's the best thing that has ever happened to me.
0: This is why OTAs are successful. OTAs do a better job of selling a hotel than the hotel it it does. I think we need to do a, a whole episode based on that topic because... When you think about the information they provide in the nudges that they give someone, oh, yeah. You know, like, so many people have booked this in this last however many hours, or only this many units left, or these are the reviews that were recently left.
2: Well, they're using those psychology principles and the social proof just at kind of every, like you said, a little nudge.
0: Right. It, it's all it is. They're pushing people through the funnel better than the hotel is. And that's why OTAs can exist. And that's why, even though we know guests that go into the hotel site, and the OTA, a lot of times people still book with the OTA, even when the rate's the same, because the OTAs do a better job of convenience for the guests.
2: Oh, no, there's only three rooms left, and you go back the next day. Oh, no, there's only five rooms left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen the ones where you it says there's only one room left, and then you change the number of it's rooms tripping, you want yeah. to two, and it says, oh, yeah, there's, yeah, two, there's two rooms the room left. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> but, but that should it's be trickster. a real...
1: You know, awakening moment for any hotel when you see that people go from your hotel site to an OTA and book your room, that is in some cases twenty five percent of you know your income is going to the OTA. That's a lot of money you can put toward making that guest want to book on your property.
0: Yeah, I, I mean I felt like that's a whole podcast episode right there that we need to do. But, so that was number five, right? Five of the, out of
2: five. We made it.
0: Yeah. We said this was going to be a short episode. We
2: say that like every week. Yeah.
0: Night. And we ramble.
2: We need to change our ads to stop saying the best 30, 30 minutes. minutes. The best.
1: Yeah, Ooh, it is the best 30 minutes. There's some bad parts. that oh, <laughs> <Yeah.
0: that's laughs> yeah. You cut out the, the crap. The best 30 minutes, the worst yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I listen to mine on one and a half speed. So it, it's about 30 minutes oh, when I listen to
1: it. That's how I I listen to mine, and it annoys me to hear myself at regular speed.
0: It annoys me to hear hear you any day of the week.
1: (laughs) I'm just kidding. That does not fall into the best Hey, we're recording this on Valentine's Day,
0: and I love all you guys, and I love everyone that's listening to this podcast. And if you reciprocate that love, then please go to iTunes and leave a review because that is how we will fill the love, and we'll read it out. If you want to write your sonnet to us in... Compare us to a summer's day, or whatever it is a you haiku. want to do. No, I, I prefer... challenge you
2: to a
1: haiku. Because whatever they write, I have to read in its entirety as it is written.
2: Yeah. I
0: hope it's a haiku. <laughs> I, I'm going for a sonnet, but I don't know if there's a like a limit on the number what of. What about a
2: simile? Or a a soliloquy.
0: Soliloquy. soliloquy. Let's means... just say words. Okay.
1: Just leave a review <laughs> <laughs> <How> about that. <laughs> I, I don't want to make you jump through any extra hoops. We just I, want the review.
0: And then don't forget to go to uh, fueltravel.com slash website study where you can get the latest, greatest study that we just pushed out uh, in conjunction with FLIP2. And uh, where can they find you on the web, Peter DeMeo?
1: They can find me on Twitter at pdemeo, P-D-I-M-A-I-O. And Philip. You can find me on Twitter at pfariska,
3: that's P-F-O-R-I-S-K-A. Misha.
2: When I am not ordering Chinese food or perusing the Amazon app, you can find me on Twitter at Marketing Misha. That's at Marketing M-E-I-S-H-A.
0: And you can find me at Stuart Butler, S-T-U-A-R-T-B-U-T-L-E-R. You can find us collectively at Fuel Travel. You can get the uh, notes to this episode at fueltravel.com slash podcast and click on episode 43. And until next time, you have been listening to the Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast.